Ready when you are, compadre. Mr. Ravenscroft. Mr. Leffer. How are you doing tonight? Doing great. How are you? I am doing pretty well. And I'll start off by saying I did not write an intro to this episode because the guests on this podcast are so well known, <laughs> so highly <laughs> qualified. And uh, they literally need no introduction. Literally no introduction. <laughs> You know, Laffer, I couldn't have said that any better myself. I couldn't have scripted a better opening. <laughs> and I take pride in my wordsmithing. That is true, uh, because today we're doing a, um, a, a 1980s, 90s sitcom-style crossover episode where we're appearing on another podcast. So the podcast that we're going to be posting today is our interview with Kyle McNulty, who is the host of Secure Ventures, which is a recently launched podcast based in San Diego. But since it's a podcast, it's technically based everywhere in space, in radio frequency. That's how yeah. it works, right? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how it works. Um, I just Googled how podcasts work. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say it was interesting experience being on the other side of the table answering questions. It was, wasn't it? It was kind of nice. You know, as a, as a venture capitalist, I so rarely get the opportunity to talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> no, funny. it was a real treat being on Kyle's podcast. We had a lot of fun. Um, for those of you who haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, uh, the podcast is called Secure Ventures. Um, Kyle is uh, a, a cybersecurity buff. And um, it's a fantastic podcast. So most of, the, most of the interview, we talked about cybersecurity investing and other kinds of investing as well. But um, I feel I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to ramble. There's a lot of good advice for entrepreneurs that is pertinent to any industry. That's right. And our voices are very soothing. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, why don't we just let ourselves take it away? Or I guess Kyle take it away. <laughs> and we'll let Kyle introduce us. <laughs> this is going to be one of the better intros we ever record. Exactly. Okay. Raw. Please enjoy our interview with Kyle McNulty uh, of Secure Ventures. I'm Kyle McNulty, and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode are Mike Ravenscroft and Mike Leffer, both venture capitalists and fellow podcast hosts. Their podcast, Extreme Uncertainty, follows a similar format to this one, where they interview influential figures at prominent technology, healthcare, and security companies. I highly recommend checking it out if you're looking for more great content. Now, this episode follows a different format from usual, as I wanted to get their perspective from the other side of the early stage journey, fundraising. Hopefully you enjoy the conversation and their tips as much as I did. Let's dive into it. Mike and Mike, how did each of you get started in venture capital? Mike, you want to go first? I was going to say Ravenscroft, you can go first, but I'm... I can, I, I can go first, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so first of all, Kyle, thanks so much for having us on. It's a real pleasure uh, to be on your podcast. Um, <clears throat> so I got into venture backwards. Um, and the more I meet people in VC, the more I hear that this is kind of par for the course. But I was at uh, an organization called CIT, uh, the Center for Innovative Technology. And I was working there as a consultant. Um, I was doing a lot of like, um, you know, technology consulting projects for mostly Virginia government agencies and some federal government agencies as well. I got pulled into an accelerator program that CIT was launching for Department of Homeland Security. So DHS wanted to figure out a way to source innovation from the startup ecosystem. There's not a whole lot of innovation that happens on uh, the first responder, uh, in the first responder technology um, uh, base. And so uh, DHS came to us and said, we want to uh, launch an accelerator program to, to try and connect uh, first responders, so police, firefighters, EMTs with um, startup tech founders, because we think they have some solutions that could be appropriate. Uh, for those use cases. And um, I ran that accelerator for um, like nine months uh, with a couple of my colleagues. And I, once I started working with startups, I was, I was sold. Like I was like, <laughs> this is what I want to do my, with my career. 
Um, and I didn't even know really what venture capital was at that point. I sort of basically understood it, but like I, I never had any experience in it. And very rapidly just got uh, into the mix. I ran two other accelerators, um, uh, one of which was Mach 37. Uh, and that was a cybersecurity accelerator. And that's when I got into the world of cyber. And that's when I joined the investment team at CIT. Um, and then from there, I've, I've uh, moved on and worked with a couple of other funds, um, C5 Capital, ran my own venture consulting business for a little while, working with startups and with VCs. And then now uh, I'm about to join the Dream Adventures team uh, in Philadelphia, which has a security uh, vertical as well as a healthcare vertical. Um, and so we invest in companies that are um, like sort of post-seed, pre-series A, and we help accelerate them to um, the series A round. So kind of a roundabout answer, but it was a roundabout route. <laughs> so Mike Leffer has a much more, um, uh, well, actually, no, you, Leffer, you, you're pretty roundabout too. Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely not one of those folks who has the typical path into venture. I don't, I don't know if there necessarily is a typical path to venture, but my background, I did my undergrad at West Point and after graduating was an army officer for a few years. And I wasn't in the uh, cyber branch. I spent all my time in Hawaii uh, having fun doing logistics. But around the same time I went active duty, I co-founded my first company doing uh, high-end online training for baseball athletes. My, my co-founder was drafted by the White Sox coming out of Maryland, mm-hmm. throwing about 95 as a lefty. And wow. he, he'd blogged about his training online. And as soon as that publicity or PR came out, there was this instant demand for that training. And we, we just used a really thin tech layer to automate as much of the process is possible of creating these high-end performance plans for the, the athletes. And we were charging, you know, five, 600 bucks per month. We could stack 50 to 60 athletes per coach and built a really profitable lifestyle business. You know, we never had to raise any venture money for it. Uh, just a really, really good business. Uh, did that for about three years, went through what I now consider to be typical founder drama in many ways, uh, you know, won't, won't dig into it till too deep, but ended up selling my part of that company for a, a tiny little amount to a third third party. And more than anything else came away with a, a sense of empathy and appreciation for the founder experience, but truly had no idea what I wanted to do next. So came back to where I'm from originally in Baltimore to start my MBA at Hopkins. And at that point, you know, I was looking at consulting, banking, everything under the sun, you know, they don't, they don't teach you what options are there in the military. So ended up reconnecting with an old friend and grabbed a beer and he was working for a group called Baltimore angels. And the only thing I knew about investing in startups was from what I saw in shark tank, which I thought was pretty stupid to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Mark Cuban, if you're listening, we're sorry. It's funny enough. Now I, I watch that show religiously. It's it's kind of like uh, it's like watching Law and Order being a cop or something, or maybe more <laughs> sure, like CSI, sure. more like CSI. But that's uh, not real. That's yeah. not real. You can't do it that way. Yeah. So I, I grabbed a beer with him, and he started telling me about this angel group, and I was like, oh, it sounds pretty cool. And you know, as luck would have it, a, a internship popped up on the Hopkins career page because I had the network in. I, I fortunately ended up getting a role. And then over the course of the year, t- turned that into a part-time job, started doing some advisory work for other startups. And, uh, you know, thanks to luck again, I met uh, another gentleman in October of 2018 who was just getting out of an earnout from his second company he sold. And uh, him and I got together, grabbed a cup of coffee and decided to start a venture capital fund. <laughs> and so, yeah, kicked off the fundraising process for Squadra in probably January, February of 2019. And since then, Squadra's closed about $26, $27 million funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've invested in six companies. I had the chance to lead the last four, one of which was just acquired for a, a good return in 16 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really awesome experience. And that was kind of my first my first jump into venture. And, and since then, obviously, I've transitioned over to early light ventures, but still doing the same type of uh, B2B software investing, including cyber. Interesting. Yeah. Like you, like you alluded to, they're both kind of roundabout paths to venture, uh, but 
thinking on the differences between your backgrounds, uh, Ravenscroft coming from kind of the accelerator start and Leffer coming from actually being a founder yourself, how do you think those backgrounds have influenced your investment strategies today? And maybe Ravenscroft first. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I as I as I alluded to, I uh, got into venture capital because it was a way of working with startups. Like right. I, um, I you know, I've not been a, a tech founder. I've, I've run my own um, consulting company, but I've not you know never tried to launch a tech product uh, product company. And um, you know, I you know my my sense was always just that like the most interesting conversation I had in a day was with a founder. It's usually an engineer, but not always, you know, somebody who's developed something um, that they think is quite unique and they don't necessarily know yet how to get it to market. You know, that was what an accelerator program in the early days uh, was designed to do. You know, it's, it's to take uh, a very early stage company and rapidly um, scale their customer discovery efforts, uh, you know, get them speaking with, um, uh, you know, potential partners for, you know, whatever their go to market channels might be connecting them with investors. Um, and so for me, what I look for and what, you know, what, how that sort of formed my investment thesis was just, you know, I wanted to work with the founders, um, that people wanted to work with. I wanted to work with people that were, were open to, um, you know, taking advice, taking input, but still had a very clear sense of the vision that they uh, had for their company. Um, you know, I think about this quote a lot from Jeff Bezos, uh, be stubborn on the vision, be flexible in the details. I think it's one of the best uh, ways to sort of think about life generally, um, because it's important to have a North Star. It's, it's, it's critical if you're a startup founder. You have to know what it is you're doing. You have to know what value you're going to deliver to your customer, um, you know, what industry uh, you're looking to upend. You, you have to understand what your vision is. You also have to be very open to pivoting all the time. You have to be very flexible on the details. And so um, when I look at an investment opportunity, you know, I back into the economics and the sort of the market opportunity, I start with the founding team. Sure. Um, because, you know, I, I'm always of the opinion that um, the founder who's been in industry, who's seen what's going wrong in industry and who wants to fix a problem that they know firsthand, those are that that's the conversation I want to have first. And then, you know, down the road, you get to, okay, this is a problem, but it's not a big enough problem. Or it's, you know, it's, it's a good company. It's just not a venturable um uh, business, you know, like there, there are other things that, that will, that will sort of change the way you, you make an investment decision or, or, or don't invest. But for me, it always starts with the team because, you know, you can try to de-risk the market as much as possible, but it's very hard to predict the market seven, eight, 10 years out. You know, that's why VC has such a high failure rate. Cause it's, it's hard to, it, it's, it's almost impossible to predict what exactly is going to happen five, 10 years down the road. Um, big companies can't do it. You know, big companies struggle to innovate for the same reason. Um, so for me, like the only real tangible thing I have is a founding team and their sort of personality and the way they work together and what their what their strengths and weaknesses are. That's that's you know the the first thing that I de-risk, and then everything sort of follows from that. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Leffer, how does your approach differ? So so team plays a massive part in it, but I'm going to talk about something that's maybe a little bit easier to assess up front. And, and that's, you know, at, at my first company, I mentioned this before, saw this instant demand for the product. It was effectively selling itself and there was, it wasn't, there was product market fit. There was very little customer acquisition cost, just a content marketing driven strategy. And there was, it was being pulled by the customer and the fastest growing companies from what I've seen in my limited experience are the ones where the customers are pulling and searching and demanding the product. And if you have to push your solution on a potential customer, there's probably something that needs to be reassessed or analyzed. And it's going to be a riskier investment from the investor's perspective, but also from the founder's use of time, because it might, it might mean, and it's not always the case that there's no need for that that product or service. Hmm. So that's the first piece is what are the signals of product market fit? Is that authentic demand value truly there? Going back to what Mike said about the team, you know, I, I was a, a part of this, uh, this situation where you know, ultimately I got replaced at a, at a startup after a few years. And, and I've seen from the investment perspective, the advisor perspective, 
founders get replaced all the time. It could be the CEO, it could be the CTO. It might be because the company is scaled and they're no longer the right person for the job when they're 20 people in the company versus three. Uh, it might be because they're just not performing. There's a variety of different reasons, including personal issues. But you've got to de-risk that team as much as possible and make sure that the, the relationship and the culture is healthy because um, it's not always the case. And and the other thing you can do is have that frank conversation at some point with the entrepreneur saying, look, you know, what happens if, if someone doesn't perform? You have to be ready and, and always aware that that's a possibility. And that, you know, I could probably talk about this for a while. And I, I think I wrote an article about how to, how to go about that process and having a plan and, and not, not waiting too long to make these decisions. Cause it can really set a company back six to 12 months. If you have to replace a, a CTO or COO when you don't action it quickly. Hmm. Interesting. So maybe on the other side of that same discussion, then what's the biggest red flag that each of you have when assessing a potential investment? Again, we'll maybe start with Ravenscroft. Oh man. Um, I, I used to think about this as like, what's the, the, the red flag or whatever. I, sure. I think, um, the, the thing the what I've sort of evolved to, everybody does this differently. Like everybody looks at companies differently as just, right. you know, Mike and I have, have just demonstrated, you know? Um, so, and you know, there's a saying in VC, if you've met one investor, you've met one investor, you know, and like, that's true. That is beyond true for, you know, uh, all the VCs I know, you know, everybody has their own way of thinking about this. I think, um, what I, what I have found to be the case is that I will, there's, there's always a, a fund that I, that I worked for previously. One the managing partner said, um, there's always warts. You have to figure out whether you can get comfortable with them. No company is a perfect, uh, slam dunk investment. There's always something. And, and this is true by the way, for public equities as well, right? Like if you're making an investment in a publicly traded company, there, there are people who think that it's great. And there are people who think it's terrible. Like there's right. no, there's no perfect investment, right? Otherwise we'd all be billionaires. Um, <laughs> what I think is the case is that, you know, when you, when you have that first conversation with a founder and you are, are sort of hooked, you know, when you have that feeling of being hooked, um, that's when I start to go, you know, you, you make that decision with your gut, you know, that's sort of like the lizard brain making that decision. Sure. And then you use your frontal cortex to figure out whether or not that is justified. So for me, it's like, okay, I think this is a good idea, but why? And then I try to like logic myself through all the things that might be wrong with it. Um, so, and you know, that's usually when you hit upon that hurdle where it's like, I like this company, but it's not a good investment, right? It's sure. like, I like, I like the team. I like the tech. I like the market the valuations way off, you know? And so like, even if it returns, it's not going to return enough to, to justify the investment. Um, as far as though, like a sort of, I mean, do you, when you say a red flag, do you mean sort of like an instantaneous, I know this is not a good fit kind of thing? Yep, exactly. So if I were to think of one, uh, it would be um, a sense that the founder doesn't understand the problem fully. Hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that is, so what, what Leffer said earlier about um, whether there's a customer need you know, sometimes you'll speak with uh, with founders who have spent you know a couple of years building um, a a platform for a specific use case within an industry, um, but it's not clear that they really understand what the problem is, or what like sort of the value drivers are for that business, or what the what the value is that they will provide with their solution. Um, this is particularly tricky in cyber, I think, because in cyber you're you're generally pitching on this is more secure than the next guy's solution. <laughs> um, which is not a good way to pitch a, a cybersecurity solution, I don't think. I mean, there, there are a lot of other things that you have to take. In. That's not the only thing that a CISO cares about. It's, it's a very important thing. Um, but there are, you know, a, a manifold of things on a CEO's, uh, you know, top of mind, you know, list of priorities, one of which is justifying any expense to the board that you have to, that you have to be able to, to take into consideration when you're, when you're pitching a, a, a startup. Um, and so, you know, like 
if, if that mismatch is there or if I, if I, in speaking with a founder and then speaking with some, some customers, like I just get the sense that there's not like that alignment or that they're solving a, a problem that isn't there or they're building a solution that's seeking a problem. That to me is the, the red flag where I just, I can't get past that because then everything that follows is kind of in question. Like, is the market really there? Uh, does this team really have a line of sight on, you know, who their customers are? Do they, do they care what their customers think? You know, that, that's a huge red flag. You know, if you don't, as a startup, if you're, or as a startup CEO, if the customer is not your number one concern, like, um, one, one time I, I, I had a founder tell me, um, well, it doesn't really matter what they think because this is going to deliver value. It's like that, that those two things don't make sense. You can't, (laughs) you can't think that the customer doesn't know what their, what their pains are. You have to listen to them. It's not the other way around. So that's, that's kind of my big red, red flag. Okay. And I want to drill into something you said a little bit further before I turn it over to Leffer. You mentioned the process of having that kind of emotional or intuitive hook followed by the frontal cortex thinking. Does that mean that if you don't have that initial hook, that the opportunity is just off the table for you? Yeah. So so this is one of the things that I've been most surprised about um, in VC. And that's that the first impression really matters. Hmm. And the problem with a first impression is you only get one. Right. So if you, so you know, I, I was amazed. You know, I, I had a, I brought in a couple of founders early on when I was on the Gap team when I was on, when I was at CIT, and and like they just had a bad pitch. And I was like, well, you know, I, I heard a I heard a better pitch. You know, like I'll just bring them back in. And the team was like, no, we're we're not interested. And it's like hmm. that that. And I thought like maybe that was just an eccentricity sort of of the dynamic, and maybe like the founder was particularly you know had a particularly bad day. But it, it really is the case that that first impression, it's like if you don't immediately hook, because VCs see thousands of companies a year. You know, right. I, I when I at, at my, you know, at my at my current role um, as the venture associate for uh, Dingman Angels Network, Dingman Center Angels Network, um, you know, we see like fifty or sixty companies a month, and that's those are like pre vetted. You know, we're getting those from our investor partners. Those are not like typically cold um, outreaches. Hmm. So like. There's a really high bar as far as just you know general pattern recognition, um, general good impression. Like, did I get a good feeling about this founding team? And that's um, that's really hard to overcome. Like, it, it's it's not. It doesn't mean that it's impossible, but it that first meeting and that first impression really does matter. And I've been amazed at you know the rooms where I've been in where it's like the founder has spent months trying to get a meeting, and then they just haven't practiced their pitch or they haven't like really. Mm-hmm you know, done the work to sort of research the fund, you know, I, I mean, Leffer, I'm sure you've been in these conversations too, where it's like, um, you know, you have a founder saying like, well, you know, we, we really want, uh, uh, a series a, you know, we're looking for like a series a series B investment. And they're like, well, we're a seed fund. Like, why are you, you know, like you sh- probably should have known that walking in the door. <laughs> and it's like, it's just, it's just that, that like last mile sometimes. And it's like, if that, if you, if you can't, nail like stick the landing in that first meeting it's just it's so hard to overcome Laffer, i'm curious to hear your thoughts on that the red flag question or what was the the second piece i forgot that kyle's actually interviewing us not me interviewing <laughs> kyle, <laughs> kyle you asked the question <laughs> no you're on the right track i think it's uh, both over to you Laffer. so maybe first starting with the red flag piece uh, and then talking about the value of first impressions and uh, determining kind of your emotional response or tempering your emotional response in that first pitch. Yeah. So my, my red flag is very similar to what Mike said. It's especially in cyber, I'll often see a heavy, heavy technology centered pitch. It's like next generation, uh, intrusion detection or threat intelligence or packet sniffing. And that's great, but they founders, when they don't present the business case and the return on investment to the board and the CISO, and they don't talk about how they're going to get customers and what data they have to show that uh, customers are going to buy it or they've already bought it, it's just too heavily weighted towards the tech. And then I can't get a warm and fuzzy or comfortable with with them that they're actually going to be able to take take it to market and grow a business and company. Hmm. And I guess more generally, the team, the current company team has to have a few different things. You have to have that technology 
and product, you have to have someone who can sell that. And then you have to have someone who can kind of drive the vision of the company and be that glue to hold it together. And so as always, the, the team is really important. And if it's too heavily weighted towards any of those one, one dimensions without including all of it, it's, it's higher risk. And then the second piece you asked was around, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. So thinking to the process that Ravenscroft described oh, as far as yeah, yeah, um, yeah. having that emotional response to them. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, this is something I've had to, from an investor lens, work on personally where I will, I will let my emotional response and gut reaction to the founder and the pitch cloud my rational analytical uh decision making sure and my deliberate process for this is i'm not going to invest on the spot because that'll make a a bad a bad (laughs) decision i think that you know the good book uh to read is thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman you need Mm -hmm. to get the the type one and type two decisions and when you're putting hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars into a company you, you don't have the luxury of going that quickly because you actually want to make the right choice. (laughs) And so, yes, it can be advantageous for founders to make that good first impression, but hopefully you have uh, investors who are trying to be deliberate about being rational as well. And so I think you're going to ask about the best pitches you've heard or we've heard. And I, I can have a specific example that kind of goes into this later. Well, perfect. I was actually just going to pivot to that next. And I know we've had this order, but let's shake it up a little bit and Leffer, you can go first. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the best pitch I've ever heard was actually a a cybersecurity company. And a lot of the times I, I really hate when founders compare themselves like, Oh, we're building the next Uber. We're we're building the next (laughs) Airbnb. But in this case, uh, the founders, said we're building the next uh, insert name of a publicly traded open source cybersecurity company. And I was like, okay, great. And then the next slide, they said that the founder of that company was an advisor and investor in theirs. And I was like, oh, well, you actually like back up that claim. <laughs> so they like they, they hit me over the head with that emotional, you know, anchoring it to a, a billion dollar company. And then they had that that proof point that the founder of that billion dollar company was actually invested in, in participating in the growth of this one. So, uh, that was awesome. And then they, they went into all the data about the traction their, their open source tool had and why they were the team to win and why they were hungry and they had a plan for it. And there was a business case, et cetera. So it had all of the, the things I look for in terms of, you know, the, the emotional hit, the, pattern recognition of the big opportunity, the big market, the technology, and then the, the business sense and plan for how they were going to, going to grow it. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Makes sense. It sounds like it kind of hit all the bases and then had that, that bonus point as well. Like you were talking about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ravenscroft. What are your thoughts as far as best pitch you've ever heard? So like while I was talking, I was like running through the, like, you know, a clip show, of my life, <laughs> sure. of all the pitches I've seen, and I, you know, I I feel like I got a hedge on this one because I just don't I just don't know what the best pitches I've ever seen. I mean, I you know I think um, I think the best investments uh, that I've made. Let me let me I'll, I'll say this a different. I'll answer this question a different way. Um, the best pitches and the best companies and the best investments um, that I've made, I think, are those. Um, where I have had the longest uh, relationship with the founder prior to the pitch. Hmm. So, um, you know, I, and this is not always the case, right? I mean, like, you know, I, I know a lot of founders, I've known a lot of founders for years and, um, you know, uh, some, some of them I've been able to bring in for an investment. Some of them I haven't. Um, but I have found though, that, um, I really like to see the company sort of develop and, you know, I, and this is, this is why, you know, one of my biggest pieces of advice to founders is um, it's never too early to, to start um, meeting with um, VCs. 
it's never too it's never too early to start to get to know people in venture because you start to understand what their expectations are. Um, it's good for like VCs like to track companies. They like to understand founders. They like to really get to know founders. Um, and so you know, there's a there's a cyber company that I uh, ended up being. I think we were the first. So this was a CIT investment. We were the first um, outside capital, I believe. Um, they might have had one other angel coming in at the same time, but this was their first round of funding. Um, and the the founder had sort of gone the federal um, funding route. Hmm. So he had, you know, I, I started, I, I met him, you know, two jobs before he ended up starting his um, his company. And, um, you know, he was looking to, to get involved with startups somehow. He just kind of knew that he wanted to be a founder. Um, and, you know, I... I spoke with him for years, like just every now and then we'd catch up and he'd, he'd tell me about what he was doing and I would, you know, give him feedback or I would, you know, say, oh, it's interesting you should talk to this person. And so like I connected him with, you know, a couple of, um, uh, a couple of folks from our CISO network at Mach 37, you know, who, who had conversations with him, gave him feedback, you know, and it was sort of like a, a really, it was just a, you know, a friendship, um, after, after a certain point. Um, but then when he, when he, uh, got the validation for his technology through, um, early contracts with, um, the, it was like army Corps of engineers and like a couple of other, it's, it's a, mm. an infrastructure, um, cybersecurity play. Sure. Um, so, um, basically dramatically reduced, like the value proposition that he saw was that there's this technology that he and his uh, CTO developed, which is, um, I don't want to give too much away because I don't want to say the name of the company. Um, but you know, basically dramatically reduced the cost to secure, um, enterprise or to, to secure, um, uh, infrastructure. So like we think, you know, water authorities, hmm. um, data centers, et cetera. But it took him like two years to get to the point where the tech had been validated and they had government contracts and they had early revenue. Um, and you know, the pitch that like, there was nothing particularly like, I think extravagant about the pitch. It was like his pitch was just very, I mean, the guy's an engineer, he's very sort of calm, well-spoken, you know, you know, um, very, uh, He's got an MBA as well, so he's you know got some some business chops, but like the way that he sort of walked through and outlined you know the fact that this market is basically on its head, like to do this right now at scale, um, you can't because it's too expensive. This is why yeah. water authorities are getting hacked. Like this is why there are um, uh, companies uh, that are contracted to go and physically take data out of a a, a data center. Uh, because they can't connect uh, to the outside uh, because of the security risk, and sort of like just just showing us that the way that this had been done in the market was crazy. It, it meant it was so expensive that only the best funded, um, you know, electric grids um, or or the most forward thinking electric grids could afford it, whereas ninety five percent of them were like totally exposed to cyber attack. And you know, there was nothing flashy. There was no marketing where you know it was just very like. Um, you know, step by step, here's here's what the problem is. Here is why this is such a big deal. Here's where the money is coming from to solve this problem. And here's why existing vendors are going to get replaced by our solution, which is like 90% cheaper. Yeah. And I was like, that that to me is like, as you know, it's, it's again, there are no slam dunks. Like their route to market is still really tricky. It's really tough selling to utilities. It's really tough selling to government. But, but that alone with you know or that combined with the fact that he had built a team that he had done all of this without taking on any outside capital that he had like really done the legwork up front you know one of the one of the bigger mistakes i see founders make is they raise capital way too early hmm. like it's, you got to pay yourself right you got to find a way to, to to pay for your time and your team's time but um but pitching an institutional vc when you've got no product and no revenue doesn't make any sense <laughs> um because for one it's really hard to raise for another, you give away ownership of your company very quickly. Um, you know, raising capital on equity is very expensive. You know, I, I had a founder once ask me, like, why wouldn't I just go and get a loan from a bank? And I was like, if you can get the loan, take the loan. Because, <laughs> like, that's that's better for you. But good luck posting collateral because, like, you know, that's why startup, that's why software companies can't get loans because there's right. no collateral. So, um so, so anyway, I, I know it's kind of a long-winded answer, but um, you know, for for my money, it's like the the best pitches are those where it's just very clear that there's a problem in the market, and it's very clear that this is a problem that's like a real like up at night issue for whoever the buyer is going to be, and uh, the team that has figured this out is also the one to lead the charge. Um, 
and that very rarely happens. You know, that's why that, that's why I think it. You, know, you have to see a lot of companies to invest in a very few because it's it's hard to get that confluence. Hmm. Okay, so moving forward, then I want to dive into the security market in a bit more detail. You both have touched on it a little bit. You both started, to my understanding, in the broader technology market, and you're both a bit more focused in security today. What are some of the key differences when you're assessing a cyber company as opposed to just a greater software company in the in the technology space? Um, I'll I'll, uh, I'll start on this one because uh, I've got a pretty pretty quick answer. Um, so over this last summer, I uh, interned with um, Data Tribe Venture Studio, um, and this was where I sort of learned this lesson like firmly, and that's um, uh, experience in industry. Hmm. You have to be uh, a cybersecurity expert of at least 10 years before you can build a cybersecurity company, I think. And I think there, I know that there are people who disagree with me, but, and this is probably something that has changed in the last 20 years. But, um, you know, when you look at the leading cybersecurity companies, you know, the, the fastest growing, the most disruptive, predominantly those are founded by um, cybersecurity engineers who've been in the industry for at least 10, 15 years. And I think that the reason for that is that it is a very, very difficult technology base to develop for. It's a very difficult customer base to sell to, and um, the threshold for failure um, is is very very. Or the sorry the um, uh, the threshold for success is very very high. Like you have to you you actually have to be like generationally better as a startup from your technology value proposition in order to have a chance of competing with any of the major vendors out there. Hmm. So that's my that's my thing. It's like if the founder doesn't have at least 10, 15 years experience in cyber just it's it's you're taking a real flyer so the leopard yeah one thing i do want to dive into that a bit further how do you balance that need for experience with the rapidly evolving nature of the security market just because security has received so much attention just in the last decade here that the folks who started their careers in security 10 years ago now are in a completely different landscape than when they actually began yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so for my part, um, you know, that's why a good or like a, a, an amazing cybersecurity engineer does not necessarily make an amazing cybersecurity founder. Um, mm. Just like uh, an amazing, uh, you know, Fortune 500 CEO does not make a good startup founder. I mean, like there's no there's no one to one there. Um, you know, there there are skill sets that you have to have. And I, I think the best um, cybersecurity uh, startups that I've um, that I've seen and some of which I've invested in are those that have a balanced team. So this is not, you know, anything that you wouldn't ordinarily look for. You're always looking for balance on a team. But for, for cyber, you know, you need somebody who is, um, you know, like one of the world's best engineers uh, building the product. Mm. Uh, and you need somebody who can, in, in part because that person is likely going to be able to bring on a world-class team. Maybe it's because of the folks that they worked with at previous, um, uh, you know, companies or, you know, at the Ford or the CIA or wherever they were. Um, and then on the other side, you need to have somebody who understands the market. You need to have somebody who can sell the product, who can figure out a, a go-to-market, you know, who can market the thing. Um, because nobody is good at all of those things. Some people are good at more than one, but nobody's good at all of those things. That's why you have to have a balanced team. Hmm. So I think as far as, you know, security changing, I mean, you know, mo most of the cybersecurity engineers and entrepreneurs that I know, they're very up-to-date on, on all of the changes in industry. Um, you know, they might have specialties. Uh, which is good because cybersecurity is, is rapidly nichifying, and you know, especially mm -hmm. as a startup, you have to you have to have a, a novel uh, approach to you know very specific um, you know customer uh, segments or, or use case. Um, but you know that that for 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 me, it's it's always been like you know the the amount of time that person has been building product or um, you know running uh, red team operations or uh, you know what have you like. That really is important experience. You know, I, I, I've, I've not met too many companies where the, the founder, you know, decided they wanted to get into cyber because it, it's a, a, a very venturable industry <laughs> and they came from like, you know, a decade of being a manager at Foot Locker or something like that just doesn't happen. <laughs> sure. So for any aspiring security founders out there, your quick and easy next step is just to find a world class engineer with 10 plus years of experience in the security space. Shouldn't be too hard. <laughs> okay. Uh, Easier so, said than done. Yeah, yeah. Leffer, uh, same question over to you. How do you look at security companies differently uh, than other companies in the broader tech space? 
Yeah, it's a great question. From my perspective, security is such a crowded market. And you know, this is true of some others as well, but incremental solutions don't really cut it. Like if you're not 10 times better than mm. something else that's already in the market, it's going to get commoditized. You're not going to be able to differentiate when you're talking to customers. And like you look at the Gartner landscape maps and there's, there's barely any uh, space on there for something new. But if you, if you either have that clear technological advantage, that's a plus, or you have an unfair go to market strategy that costs you nothing to get customers. And, and the, you know, this often happens when you've got that, experienced security business person who's on the team and uh, or you have like a big a big community on the open source side or, or just more generally of uh, folks who really like what you're building so so long story short it's really crowded you have to differentiate otherwise it's going to get commoditized and it's not going to be um, a great outcome hmm. okay and so following up on that then thinking about the common thread you both mentioned, really needing to blow the competition out of the water. Where do you think the security market is headed in the next 10 years, just from an overall investment standpoint? And Ravenscroft, you already mentioned that it's kind of impossible to predict the future. But based on trends that you've seen and areas where you've seen founders be able to create those massive improvements over the current state products. Lefer, you want to take that one? I'm thinking about what I want to say. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, so, you know, I, I think another, maybe another way to, to answer this question is like, um, you know, what am I most excited about? Sure. Like, um, cause this is something that I've been thinking about for a while. I mean, so, so on our, on our podcast, actually, we've interviewed a couple of founders, um, from the, the DC region who are doing very interesting things. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think there, there are sort of paradigm shifts, happening in cyber that I'm really interested in. Um, so, you know, when we spoke with Ron Gula, um, we asked him this and, you know, he, if you look at the, the companies he's invested in, it's kind of all looking at how the dynamics of cybersecurity are going to evolve or, or change. You know, there's, there's, um, it, it's all deep tech, but there's, there's a whole lot of, you know, changing the way that organizations approach, you know, solving problems with their, with their cyber defenses. Um, you know, one of the more interesting companies that I've um, run, come across, um, and we interviewed these guys as well, um, is a company called Unveil, uh, which uh, was started by um, Ellison Ann Williams, uh, Dr. Ellison Ann Williams, who, uh, you know, was at NSA for, I think, over a decade. Um, she's got a PhD in math, um, <laughs> which, you know, should give you like sort of a level of like, when we interviewed, when Mike and I interviewed her, I was like, this person is like an order of magnitude smarter than me. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how I'm going to keep up, um, but she's really down to earth. And she, you know, what they're doing is um, enabling processing uh, and um, uh, analytics on data that is encrypted. So it's called homomorphic encryption, but it effectively means you can, you can use the data and, and, and do analysis during, without having to decrypt it. Like that potentially changes the game because that's like a, that is a, a new way of thinking about data security. You don't have to think about problems with encryption and decryption and securing data um, at rest because you can use it or in transit because you can use it uh, at rest while it's encrypted. I think that is like a fascinating approach. It's just like like I said, like that is a that is a generation a generational leap forward in terms of how we think about data security. Right. So those are the kinds of things that I'm interested in. I mean, I think that that's happening in different ways and different companies are, are doing different things in, in different sort of sub-verticals of cyber. Um, but that's one of the ones that I'm more excited about. Lefer? Yeah, 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 yeah. So on my end, I'm excited to see solutions that increase access and help retrain and train a broader swath of the, the population to actually get into the cybersecurity field. Hmm. We've got massive uh, job openings and just a, a lack of security engineers and folks who can fill them. And that's a big issue. I mean, nationally for the country in general, like high unemployment, folks who aren't skilled. So that's, that's one, one area that um, is right for disruption. 
a second. I am obviously everyone working remotely has caused like a, a large challenge for enterprises in terms of well, well now the number of endpoints is in the, the sort of threat landscape just massive now because we've got employees all over the world working from home on their their laptop and potentially unsecured networks. So how do you address those challenges? Um, I think there's a big understanding now, you know, after Stuxnet, what happened in uh, Florida at the water treatment facility, like industrial control systems haven't historically created unicorns, but I think there's a a big opportunity there as everyone becomes more aware of sort of the nation state threat. Uh, And then I'm going to end with this. I am not the smartest person in cyber. And so how I like to assess companies and opportunities is by talking to people who are, uh, you know, much more in the weeds and highly qualified. Uh, so I, I always like to leverage experts and, uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would be skeptical, skeptical of anyone who says they know exactly what the future is gonna, gonna bring. Right. Cause I certainly I don't. double down on that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Well, I did want to follow up on that topic as well, right? Because neither of you coming from a security background, I'm sure it's kind of a different approach to making investments in the space, just lacking some of that deep subject matter expertise. So how have you balanced that uh, lack of in-depth knowledge with other resources such as expert opinions, or again, maybe going back to just your gut intuition and uh, the explanations that founders are able to provide as far as the problem and the solution? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start on this one. So, um, I was pretty intimidated by cyber when I first uh, got into it, but um, and I'm still intimidated by it in the in the technical sense because I'm not a you know I'm not a, a cybersecurity expert and I'm not a, a technologist. Um, but I realized pretty quickly that uh, there are people that I know, uh, like Mike said, that, that can help me de-risk that. You know, so uh, you know when whenever we do technical diligence on a company. You know, we uh, we we do like you know demos of product, and we and we have like interviews with um, cybersecurity experts. You know, people people in our network. So when I was at Mach 37, you know, we had 100 plus um, CISOs, um, various CXOs, uh, you know, software engineers, you know, who are in the cybersecurity industry, who would help to do the the you know the sort of validation of the technology. But that's that's standard. I mean, right. You know, you do that for any company you're looking at. It's just a, it's just an industry. The, the thing that is, is true though, is that you're still, it's still a product sale. So CISOs are people, they're not automatons, they're not robots, <laughs> um, you know, and they don't have an infinite budget. So the value proposition has to be very clear. And I've realized that like, you know, you can learn what a CISO's priorities are by talking to CISOs. So the first year that I was in cyber investing, I went to every networking event I could. I went to you know every lunch and learn. I, I joined you know webinars that were given by CISOs. I read industry publications, and I, I tried to just sort of like get the kind of um, off the cuff take from CISOs about what their what their problems are. Hmm. Because you know there's a there's a difference between what CISOs and and um, you know people talking about cybersecurity say publicly, and then what they say at a cocktail party. <laughs> and I found that you have to you have to be able to marry those two things because. Um, you know, publicly, it's sort of like we are out there on the edge. You know, we are looking for innovative technology. We are looking to, you know, expand our tech stack. There, there is, a, there are elements of truth to that. But then, when you talk to uh, CISO at a cocktail party, they'll be like, "If anybody pitches me one more single pane of glass solution that isn't a single pane of glass, <laughs> I'm gonna throw them out of my office." You know, it's like they they have real problems. Like nobody wakes up in the morning, CISOs included, saying, "I gotta get me some AI. Where can I get some of those AI solutions?" It's like no. I want to free up an additional 10, 15 minutes in my day. I don't want to have to, you know, get a phone call at uh, 11 o'clock on a Saturday night from one of my software engineers saying, like, you know, we're we're being hacked. You know, it's like those are the things. They're people. You know, they they care about the same kinds of things as anybody does in their job. It's just they're they're in a specific kind of job. They have specific uh, concerns, and and so it's like, yeah, you know, you can only learn that by talking to people. I think. And like the, the founders, I think, who, like I said, resonate the most with me when they're pitching a cyber solution, as they, they can say, like, we built this product to address the concerns of the customer. So if the customer is the CISO, here's how this makes the CISO's life easier. Here's how uh, this makes the CISO look better at the end of the year. Here are the KPIs they care about. Here are the metrics that they're going to be measured on. And here's how our product helps, to, helps them hit those. That's why people buy tech solutions. 
at the end of the day, like that, that is what people are looking for. They're looking for technology to make their lives easier, not, oh, now I have this other software that I now have to go check. So I got to hire <laughs> 15 more people to go and use that thing exclusively. And oh, by the way, none of these tools talk to each other. So, you know, it's like that's that I think is a struggle in cyber. It's a very complex. Um, it's it, in some ways it's very complex and it's also very not complex. It is a human problem like most other problems. Yeah, agreed. Agreed with everything that Mike said. I just spent a lot of time buying CISOs beers and taking them out to lunch and having frank conversations with them. And then, you know, on my side, I I can assess the business traction. You know, you can see if customers are purchasing the product or service at a high velocity. They're not just in-network sales or or customers that they had relationships with previously. And you can kind of look at all those business indicators we talked about before to assess the health of the business. And then, um, you know, it's never good to be a lemming, but if you have other cyber investors, maybe who are smarter than, than you, that's always a good indicator as well. Hmm. Okay, great. Well, I do want to give you both a chance to provide any sort of actionable advice for founders that let's say are, are struggling getting VC funding or, or maybe just funding in general. Uh, Ravenscroft, you mentioned earlier, uh, it's never too early to talk to VCs. What other maybe one point would each of you have uh, just as a recommendation for founders going through that? Yeah, so I'll say two things. So so on the one, I'll just caveat what I said earlier. It's never too early to talk to VCs. It can be too early to pitch VCs. Right. And that is something that you really have to, you really have to balance. Like when you're talking to a, a, an investor and you're sort of getting a sense for what they're like, um, you know, mental milestones are that they would expect you to hit, you know, whether that's a revenue number, whether that's like a couple of enterprise customers, whether that's, you know, a, a pilot with a, you know, depending on what your technology is, like a pilot with a, a, a government agency or utility or whatever, like knowing that prepares you to pitch. So it can be too early to pitch VCs. If you pitch too early, then you, there's a long road back to, to that next meeting. <laughs> um, so, uh, as far as advice though, for, for founders, I mean, I think that the biggest stumbling block um, that I have seen in pitches, sort of like the biggest area where there's pushback, is um, being able to to comprehensively but succinctly articulate the problem that the technology is going to solve. Hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think that there, there's just this sense uh, sometimes when when founders are pitching that everybody understands the problem. You know, so it's like, oh, yeah, I, everybody knows that um, CISOs struggle with um, prioritizing threats, you know. Well, I mean, some, some people don't know that. A lot of people do, you know, who are in industry or, you know, specific investors, but, uh, you know, cyber-specific investors. But, but you know, it's, it's, very hard to, it's very hard to pitch a solution if it isn't already fully understood the extent of the problem. And when I say the extent of the problem, uh, venture investors don't want to invest in... Um, value propositions, like Mike said, that are like, this is an incremental improvement. So right now you're getting, you know, uh, a 10% savings with the solution you're, you're um, uh, deployed right now. I can get you 12, <laughs> you know, like that's not compelling, right? Um, and, and so you, you really have to, you really have to know um, and, and have practiced pitching your problem uh, that you're solving. Um, you know, there's never, there's never too much practice that you can do on that because you have to know it cold because if you get that question back, like, well, wait a minute, when you say this is a problem, like, who do you mean it's a problem for? Who's it a problem for? Um, you know, well, so how are people solving this problem right now? Why, how do you know this is a problem? Like my, my advice to founders is always you, you pitch with the, um, you pitch with the argument and then you back it up with data. So like, you know, whatever, especially in cyber, right? It's like, Whatever you think that problem is, you have to be able to justify that. And um, that's, I think, usually where the most robust discussion happens um, among VCs, especially at the seed level, because, you know, you made it, you maybe don't have the revenue to sort of like validate the, the market. So you're kind of going more on like early interest and sort of indications from the market that there that there is or isn't this problem. And so, um, you know, in all the deal rooms I've been in, like uh, they, they tend to fall apart when... Um, uh, if, if the team can't come to a consensus on the fact that the problem is really there. 
because that's sort of the first, you know, and then, you know, beyond that, it's like, well, okay, maybe the problem is there and we agree with that, but maybe this is not the right team to solve it. Like, okay, that's a second order concern. But for me, it always kind of comes back to, is this really something that is going to like upend the industry? Like, is this problem felt big enough? Is it, Hmm. is this problem getting worse? Is this really like a sort of an up at night issue for whoever the customer is? To me, that's, especially in cyber, like you have to have that. Because like Mike said, it's like, you know, nobody gets in trouble at the senior level for like buying, for like going with, you know, IBM. Like, I mean, there's that old thing. Nobody <laughs> got fired for buying IBM, right? Like no, nobody's going to get in trouble because they went with like the, the leading vendor in the market. People will get in trouble for going with an unproven startup. That's, that's the problem. Like it, you're, you're putting your credibility on the line when you buy something or you go with a new vendor. Like there's a, there's a big risk there, especially in cyber because the, the possibility of failure is your job. It's catastrophic, you yeah. know, maybe even the company, you know, that that's, I think that's sort of the interesting thing that's happened in cyber in the last uh, 10 years is like, now it's like the CEO goes on TV when there's a data breach hmm. because it's that important. And it's, and it's, and, and the scale of those breaches is now, um, you know, so big that it can present an exi- ex- existential threat to the business. Yeah. So that's my advice for founders. No, that's an interesting <clears throat> perspective. Uh, Leffer, anything to add to that? Yeah, so unless you've started and sold successfully a, a cyber company before, it's going to be really hard to get investment without without customers and revenue and, and traction. If you don't have that, one thing you can do to prove out that this market actually exists is having really structured customer discovery notes. And so what I mean by that is build an Excel spreadsheet, go talk to a hundred CISOs and get their opinion on their problems, get their perspective on what they're using now, tell them a little bit about what you're doing and then aggregate all of that data and, and let me see that. Uh, and that to Mike's point, helps demonstrate that the problem is real and the market is real. And then it should also provide you some really, really good insights into what is the direction I should actually take the product and the company. And so the, the best, a lot of the best companies do this customer discovery, but they also build product councils or some in, a group of initial enterprises and systems that want to help shape the direction of the company. And if you can get those early adopters to buy into the vision and help you lay out that product roadmap, and then me as an investor, I'm, I, I can actually get on the phone with one of them and they're happy to do that. That makes me feel warm and fuzzy and that this is actually, that there actually could be something there, even if it is too early and you don't have, you know, a million, half a million of, of ARR. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to hear one of the big takeaways from this conversation, I think, is the weight that you both place on actual revenue in the security market, again, just because of some of the unpredictability there. So I think that's one interesting takeaway for me. Uh, Before we go ahead and wrap up, first of all, thank you both again so much for your time. Uh, Your podcast, Extreme Uncertainty, talking with founders in the the healthcare, greater technology, and security space. Uh, What can Secure Ventures listeners expect to go find over there? Oh, boy. Endless fun. (laughs) (laughs) So an extreme uncertainty. And and by the way, you know, if you are a founder uh, out there and you think you've got an interesting story to tell, um, drop us a note. Um, So, you know, you can hit me at mike at refounded.co. Um, and, uh, you can also, uh, message us over LinkedIn. Um, we, so we, we tell, we tell the story of a founder journey. Um, and we, uh, you know, we, we've interviewed companies, um, from the seed stage all the way through to the series D at this point. Um, and we've had, uh, well, actually, no, we, we had an IPO, um, former CEO, um, uh, on the show and, and we actually, we're about to release another episode, um, in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, we, we talked to founders. We talk to founders about what it is really like to build and scale a technology company. And we are, uh, so to use vSpeak, we're vertical agnostic. We talk to <laughs> founders of cybersecurity companies, uh, food tech companies, ag tech companies, 
Um, and, you know, we're, we're predominantly interviewing founders on the East Coast, but uh, we've had a couple of founders from Chicago and we're hoping to have some from the West Coast. So feel free to drop us a note if you think you've got an interesting story to tell. Leffer, is there anything I forgot there? You also get the banter between me and Mike Leffer. Yeah, that's, there you go. That's a value add in and of itself. <laughs> it's the best part. We got some, we have some good jokes, I think. I got to work on those. All right, perfect. <laughs> well, thank you both for the time. Again, really appreciate the insight here. Thank you, Kyle. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Kyle. This was fun. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can write to me at kyle at secureventures.io. I'm Kyle McNulty, and you've been listening to Secure Ventures.